So if you've got your Bibles, uh, we'll open them up to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1. For those of you who said, I thought we were studying Acts, I'll explain that in a minute. Book of Psalms, chapter 1, says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So before I can explain to you what Psalm 1 has to do with the book of Acts, I've got to tell you about my last 38 hours. Um, the last 38 hours, uh, I was privileged to be a part of one of, I don't know, it might be the most unique memorial service I've ever been a part of, and it might be the most unique memorial service I'll ever be a part of in my life. Um, I drove down to the mountains of North Georgia uh, on Friday uh, to remember the life of, of a very special lady. Um, I didn't get a lot of time to prepare for the memorial service. Um, she had prepared many of the people who would be a part of it um, who had been in her life in a, in a more direct way over the last number of years. Um, but when I got there, there were four preachers, five friends slated to say something, and three songs. And together, when all of that transpired, it was two hours and 15 minutes in a funeral home chapel. And if you've ever been to a chapel in a funeral home, they're, they're generally quite small. Two hours and 15 minutes, we filled an entire building. There were people upstairs in parlors. There were people in other visiting parlors. There were people on the deck outside of this, this funeral home uh, just happy to be there, who probably couldn't hear a word that was said. It was one of the most unique services I've ever been a part of for a very unique woman. Um, her name was Hewett McFarlane, and I met her son 20 years ago, uh, 21 years ago, and he quickly became a brother. I have an older sister who's five years older than me. I don't have any biological brothers. Uh, and 21 years ago, this guy, her youngest son, Jason, uh, became like a brother to me, and Mrs. McFarlane, uh, much like a mother to me over the last 21 years. Um, she was an unbelievably amazing woman. She was every bit of five foot ten, five foot eleven, full head to this last day of fire engine red hair. And her personality occupied every bit of the stereotype you've got going on in your mind. In fact, in her home in North Georgia, there was this sign that someone had made for her that said, sing, dance, and wear red lipstick. And that was Huette. Uh, she sang, she danced, and she wore red lipstick all the time. Um, and she had one of the most outgoing and amazing personalities that I had ever come across in my life. Um, and I sat there for two hours and 15 minutes, uh, listening to other preachers uh, and listening to other people from her life begin to unpack the impact that she had had. And I was stunned to the, to the point where I actually was nervous to have anything to think or anything to say because of what I was learning about this woman who I'd known for 21 years, but who so many of these people had known in a different way uh, for some a longer time and some for a shorter amount of time. Uh, but as people began to get up and speak, 
as other, as other pastors who had known her began to speak about her, as her friends, some from sixth grade in Troy, Alabama, who had made the, the trip, uh, began to speak about her. Uh, I just began to hear these stories of, of this woman who had this unbelievably deep capacity for relationship, for fellowship, for community. Five women stood up who had known her over the course of 62 years, and each one to the person began to tell of how she was her best friend, and what she began to learn was that everybody was Hewitt's best friend. She had this capacity to make people around her feel loved, to feel special, to feel cared for, uh, and we began to hear these stories of this community that had grown up around her, that she had been a part of, her, her husband, uh, Woody, who I, I love dearly as well, was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and, and now is the president of the Veteran of Foreign Wars for the, for the United States. And, and there were veterans and their families from all over the country at this funeral who had come to remember this lady. And, and they began to tell stories of this community that she had formed with these families who the only bond they have was the mission their husbands were a part of. And, and you just began to hear these stories of her, of her capacity for friendship and fellowship and, and community. And people began to tell stories of her generosity, this unparalleled generosity that she and Woody had had, stories that myself, uh, her other sons and friends had never heard about. You heard stories from families who knew them through the, through the community they had developed in the VFW, telling of how they had sent money, how they had sent cars, how they had sent goods to take care of these families when husbands finally died, when, when husbands who struggled with, 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 with mental disability after the war had left their wives and, and left their kids, and how they had stepped in and cared for these ladies and cared for these children, and there were stories after story that no one even knew about of this sacrificial generosity that this woman was able to, to show to these people whom she loved dearly, whom everyone felt like, she would, like they were special to her in a way that nobody else was. And more stories kept coming of her effectiveness and, and witness and how much she loved Jesus. And, and you heard stories from people who met her in the radiation labs where for the last 12 years she had taken different chemo and radiation treatments to deal with the cancer that had that had begun to eat away at her lower spine and, and pressure a tumor up against her, her lower spine. And you heard people who had met her in there come and tell how she had encouraged them and how she had told them about Jesus and how she had shared a hope that she had that gave her this unbelievable joy in the midst of what were some of the most suffering-filled years I've ever witnessed in, in my short life. And she did it with great joy. That vivaciousness and that energy and that compassion and that graciousness. And it never diminished in the midst of what she was doing. And you heard people who most of us had never met, her sons had never even met, that she had met in the middle of this coming to tell stories of how she had been an encouragement to them, how she had brought joy into their life, how she had told them of Jesus and a hope that went beyond any hope of the radiation that they were there receiving could bring. And all of a sudden I began to listen, I began to think. Fellowship and unity and relationship, effectiveness and, and witness, a sacrificial generosity. It sounds like things that we've been talking about if you've been going through the book of Acts. This capacity to experience deep and profound joy in the face of persecution and suffering and trial, it, it sounds a lot like what we were talking about in the book of Acts and what we've been unpacking as Luke's been telling, about, telling us about this church and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, The, the, the Legend of, of Bagger Vance, but there's this moment where he, he's getting to play golf, and it's, it's all starting to sink in, and everything's starting to click. And, and I don't know if you watch it closely, you'll miss it if you don't watch it closely. But 
as he's looking at this one particular hole, this one particular putt, and he sees the lies in the, in, in the, in the grass, this little track begins to form. It's like the focus comes in on the grass, and he can see exactly how he's supposed to hit the ball and how it all begins to make sense. And as I was listening to all these people and hearing all these stories and remembering my own, of, my own experience with her, everything kind of began to come into focus, and there was something that stood out in every single story. In every single testimony and story, from the preachers to the friends to the school friends to the radiation friends to the, to the veterans to all the people who had experienced her, everything that came out, and I know it wasn't scripted, came out, she would always open up her Bible with me, sitting in the radiation, and she would share stories of, of hope and comfort. She would tell me about a scripture that she had been praying about and, and meditating on that had brought joy to her. As I sat across the table from Hewitt after my husband had passed away, and, and she came and she saw me for three days, and she spent time with me when I was alone and when I was lonely. I heard, I heard nothing but of what Scripture had brought comfort into her life during particular times. And story after story, people were talking about this capacity that she had to not only love them and share life with them, but she told and, and showed them of the place where that hope came from. It was story after story of her dependence upon Scripture and, and how the Scriptures had fortified her soul and how the Scripture had brought her hope and how the Scriptures were the source and the place where she found comfort and joy and strength and security. And it all began to make sense. And and then one particular preacher who was there who knew me when I was a troublemaker. He knew me when my reputation in the church wasn't great. He was there to remember her and, and pretty much lead the service. And he told of this one particular story when many years ago, uh, he didn't say when, he was sitting in his office and, and she came into his office and she never just came in anywhere. I mean, she was tall, she was loud. Uh, she was energetic, and in the last 12 years, she wore this long black cape that just kind of flowed behind her. And when she came into a room, she came into a room. She, she entered a room, and, and truth be told, you were happy that she did. Um, you wanted her there. Um, but he told how she had come into his office, and it was a little bit different. I mean, she, she didn't just kind of sweep in, but she just came in to see him and, and just sat right down in his chair across from his desk and looked at him and, and, and was beginning to cry. And, and she didn't... She cried easily about things that she loved. She was an incredibly tough woman. I mean, she had prayed her husband through multiple tours in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. She had prayed her soul through 12 years of cancer and treatment. She had prayed her, her boys through all the things the boys tend to find themselves caught up in and distracted by. Uh, she was a very, very tough woman. And she, for the most part in my, my life with her, she cried only about the things that really meant much to her. And this pastor said that she had come in and she was beginning to cry and and he looked at her, and he asked her what was wrong. And she looked him in the eye, and she said, through all these years, I finally get it. And he said, well, what do you mean? And she said, and she said, he said she was crying, and she said, I get it. I'm forgiven. I, I'm really forgiven. It's done. And he said she just began to cry and she began to open up her Bible and tell him how she was reading and praying through a particular text and how, how the Holy Spirit had opened it up to her for the first time in all of these years. How she had known of the love of God and tasted of the grace of God and believed deeply in the faithfulness of God through Christ. But in this moment, as the Holy Spirit opened up the eyes of her heart to understand what she was reading in this way, a penny finally dropped and she got it. And that story, as he was telling it, was like that last moment of clarity for me. 
as I began to see what, what cultivates a soul in, in such a way that the roots of the gospel, as we've been talking about, can go deep and spread wide. And what, what does this kind of thing in, in the life of this woman who I'd known and who I'd loved and who I'd heard stories of for two and a half hours, it finally became clear to me the, the chief way that the soul is cultivated and the roots of the gospel have the capacity to go deeper and deeper and deeper is through a consistent, ongoing surrendering of our souls to the word of God. I mean, what does her life and yesterday and Psalm 1 have to do with what we've seen so far in Acts? What we've seen so far in Acts is the testimony and the story of a church who my friend's mom, my other mom, reflected so beautifully in this life here today. And, and what I want to do this morning is a little bit different than what we've done uh, in the past. I'm not sure we've ever done anything quite like it before, uh, but I want to take time this morning to talk a little bit more specifically about what it means to allow the word of God to cultivate your soul in such a way that the roots of the gospel have the capacity to continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper and spread wider and wider and wider so that we can see the continued fruit of righteousness, the continued fruit of joy, of hope, of trust, of obedience of effectiveness in life and witness begin to spring out not just momentarily in our lives, but consistently in our lives and in the life of this church. So I want to talk this morning about going, allowing the word of God, let's say, to cultivate our soul. And, and I want to take a moment to say this. And I don't want to be remiss on this. Um, I am unbelievably encouraged by the numbers of you who, who are joining us in, in this New Year's effort to memorize the book of Philippians by Easter. Uh, for those of you who have, who have just come back from Christmas break, maybe, that's maybe your first week back, or those of you who are, who are new with us this morning, uh, a few weeks ago we talked about this particular challenge that we were going to put out to everybody uh, to memorize the book of Philippians between the beginning of January and Easter, 16 weeks, and we kind of sent out this uh, email that had a little plan and a, and a way to, to, uh, to create a little journal to help you do it and a, and a plan to help us memorize it. And, and I think some over 40 some odd people have already said they're going to do it. And a couple of people who haven't responded online on the city have told me in person they're doing it. So I, I think we're well over like 45, almost 50 people have said that I'm going to take the challenge to memorize the book of Philippians from January to Easter. And if you, if you haven't done it yet and you, you want to join us, it's not too late. But uh, I'm unbelievably encouraged uh, by all of the people who, who are doing that. Uh, but what I'm interested in talking about this morning is not so much the memorization of Scripture, um, as good as that is, as great as that is, as fruitful as that is, and, and, and not so much about how excited I am that all of us are doing it. I, I want to actually go back a little bit further, maybe talk about something a little more rudimentary to some of you, um, but absolutely essential to all of us. I just want to talk about reading the Bible and, and meditating on the words of Scripture, just reading and meditating. Now, I don't have to quote statistics to any of you, most likely, that would show that less than 20% of professing Christians in America actually read their Bible on a regular basis. 20% is probably elevated, I think. But 20%, most recently, say they actually read their Bible on a regular basis. I don't necessarily have to go into all those statistics because if you're really honest, your own life and your own heart bears the truth to you as to whether or not you consistently delight in surrendering your soul to the word of God on a regular basis. 
And so what I also don't want to do this morning, and I don't want you to be confused by any effort that I may have or, or any, um, what should I say, any uh, sideways point that you may think I'm trying to make, I don't want to convince you to actually read the Bible more often. I don't want to try to convince you with guilt or um, some kind of argument or, or some kind of uh, reasoning to read the Bible more consistently more often because if you can come in here and I can convince you in 45 minutes to read the Bible more regularly, you can leave here in the rest of the week and somebody can convince you not to do it. The sin in your own heart can convince you not to do it. My prayer for myself and my prayer for us this morning, why it's a little bit different um, in how we're going to approach it, my prayer is that God would do what only God can do and that he would begin to change the taste buds of our soul. He would begin to change our spiritual taste buds to help us to want what we should want, to delight in what we should delight in, that our soul might crave the word of God, that it might be like David said, sweet, sweet to our mouths. I don't want to convince you to do it. I don't want to guilt you to do it. I'm not going to add something else that you already think you have to do to earn God's pleasure because you're misunderstanding the point of it all. I just pray that through the time this morning and looking at what Scripture has to say about itself, God would do what only God can do, and he would change the very taste buds of your soul, that you may delight in his word. And here's why this is my goal, and that's my prayer, and that's what I want to see happen, not only for me, but for all of us. I want you, I want me, I want us collectively as a church to be characterized by by depth. I want us to be a people when history looks back and a service goes on in in history for Redemption Hill Church and the people who call Redemption Hill Church home, just like I went to yesterday for that dear sweet lady. I want history to look back and one of the ways it would characterize us is by being a people of depth. A people whose souls were were fertile, where the roots of the gospel had dug their way deeper and deeper and deeper, where the roots had spread wider and wider and wider. I want us to be a people who, whose souls have been cultivated by the word of God, and I want us to be a people of depth because the culture around us, the church culture we're a part of, is no longer defined by that kind of depth. It's defined by a shallowness of soul. I'm not going to get into talking about that. I'm not going to get into defining that. I'm not going to get into railing about that. You know what I'm talking about. Churches may be getting bigger and bigger. Seats may be getting fuller and fuller. But on a whole, our grip of the sufficiency of the word of God and the delightfulness of the word of God, the beauty of the gospel message itself has gotten weaker and weaker. Things might be getting bigger, but our grasp on what's essential, our grasp on what should delight us like nothing else, if anything, it's gotten weaker and weaker. And here's what I fear with this shallowness that surrounds us if we're not vigilant to deal with it. The thing that I I most fear when it comes to our souls being characterized by the same shallowness we see around us and the same shallowness that we often get so caught up in is that shallowness shallowness leaves us unbelievably susceptible to destruction. Shallowness leaves us unbelievably uh, um, susceptible to destruction. I mean, if you think about it in in the agricultural terms, and we're going to 
look at it here in Psalm 1 and the whole idea of cultivating. Think about a, a plant. Just, it's not that complicated or difficult. If a plant does not have the capacity and the space for its roots to go as deep as they need to go and spread as wide as they need to go to get the nutrients that they need and the water that they need, the plant might shoot up. But when the difficulties of the world around it and the elements of the world around it begin to bear down on it and the sun begins to bear down on it, the cold will begin to bear down on it, the wind will begin to bear on it and across it, what begins to happen? It doesn't have the capacity. It doesn't have the durability. It doesn't have the health and stability to withstand the forces around it. And ultimately, it will just die. It will never bear the fruit it was intended to bear. And it doesn't have the stability to deal with the world around it. Shallowness of soul leaves us unbelievably susceptible to destruction. And that's what I fear. I fear it's gotten so common around us not only in the world around us, but in the church culture in and of itself. And we fail to really see it for what it is. So we're no different than that plant. If we don't cultivate our soul, if we don't do work with the Spirit of God to cultivate our soul for the roots of the gospel to go deep and spread wide, we'll find ourselves in the same predicament. Easily blown. Easily fried. Easily destroyed bearing not the fruits of joy, peace, effectiveness, generosity, obedience, but anxiety, fear, frustration, anger, depression, guilt. And that's not what I want for us. I want us to be people of depth. And so we're going to talk simply this morning about the role that the Word of God plays and cultivating our soul to make us a people not marked by shallowness, but by depth. That's really the gist of Psalm 1. We're not going to spend a great deal of time in it, but let me just give you like the nutshell version of what's being said in Psalm 1. In in verse 3, David uh, begins to explain and and really portray what a righteous person looks like. And he uses the same illustration. He says he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf doesn't wither and all he does he prospers this is like a tree whose roots have been able to go down deep into fertile ground they able to go as deep as they need to go and as wide as they need to go to get the water that's nearby to sustain the life and build strength and and produce health it's got deep roots it's a it's a plant marked by depth but the wicked he says in in verse four they're not like that they're just like chaff they're like that plant that's been destroyed and and dried by the beating down sun in the desert here Its roots were not able to go deep. It it wasn't near water that could bring life and sustenance to it. Its roots were shallow. They dried out. The plant became dried. It couldn't produce its fruit in season. And when the sun in the desert beat down on it, it dried it out. So that when the wind came, it was just blown away like chaff. It wasn't deep. It was shallow. It wasn't fruitful. It was barren. It wasn't stable. It was fragile. And it wasn't able to sustain life and fruitfulness in the world around it. That's what David is portraying here and and where. Let's just be simple. I'm going to be easy this morning. Where do the roots come from? And where where do the roots that go down deep in this tree that he's talking about, where where do they come from? Where does he say that kind of health and that kind of life is produced? Look at verse 2. The righteous he's talking about, that tree planted by streams of water, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. 
those roots came because the delight of this man, the delight of this woman was in the word of God. There was a delight that was present, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but what about the wicked? What about the shallow? What about those that dried up like chaff and were blown away? Their delight wasn't in the law of the Lord, but in verse 1, you can see they actually scorned the word of God. They found no pleasure, no delight in the word of God. They found nothing to hold on to and trust in the word of God. Far from delighting in it, they mocked it and they scorned it. And the result was, when faced with the world around them, faced with the circumstances of being where they were, they weren't able to sustain life. They weren't actually able to sustain life. So if we want depth, I'm going to try to be simple. If we want depth, if we want roots to go deep and produce the fruit of righteousness, as we've been talking about throughout the book of Acts, if we want to be a people of depth who produce fruit in season, then we have to be a people who are consistently learning in an increasing way to delight in God's word, to delight in the word of God, and to meditate on the word of God, rather than people who, like verse 1, are negligent at best, scornful at worst. Really honest. Negligent of the word of God at best. That's the kindest thing we can say. Negligent of the word of God. Maybe not even disrespectful of the word of God, but negligent of it. What it is, why we should delight in it, it's negligent, still produces the same thing. Scornful at worst. Scorning the word of God. If we want to be a people of depth, we have to be a people who are increasingly learning to delight in the law of the Lord, in the word of God. And, and I don't, I'll say that repetitively because I, I don't want you to miss it. I'm not talking about being a people who are just about reading and getting the information from the word of God. If there's anything we're guilty of in the church today, and, and I know I'm a product of this, this, is, this was my story consistently from the time that I met Jesus and began to transform my heart and my soul. If we're guilty of anything, we're guilty about coming to the Bible with the effort of consuming information about the Bible and, and taking what is meant to be a delight and turning it into a duty and saying that if we're going to be an effective Christian, then this is what we have to do. And we, and we leave it at this mark of reading and consuming, and that's not what the Scripture says. So don't hear me saying, if we're going to be fruitful people, you need to go out and just read your Bible and tell me everything about it in the next six months to a year. We have to be a people, if we're going to produce this kind of depth in our lives, we're going to see this produced, we have to be a people who are learning to delight in the Word of God. That it has to become sweet to us. I'll never forget listening to, to John Piper one time when I was in Minneapolis learning at their church, and he told the story of learning to to delight in the word of God and to want to delight in the word of God the way that he personally delighted in hot fudge. And he went on to describe what it was like for him to want hot fudge. Now, that really wasn't my thing, but it was his thing, and you got the story. And, and he, he began to just describe the, the taste in his mouth that he would begin to get when he even thought about it. When he just thought about getting hot fudge how his mouth would begin to water, how he could actually smell it, and how it would begin to consume his mind. He said, this is the process of what I want in my heart when it comes to the word of God. I want to delight in the word of God in such a way that it brings this kind of joy. It brings this kind of insatiable desire, this insatiable appetite to my soul. So when we're talking about cultivating our soul with the word of God, and we're going to get really practical if I speed up and get to the end, and I want to talk to you about what that even looks like in my life and some sense of encouragement for you. It's not about simply just doing something and reading the Bible to try to check it off a list. It's about 
Our souls begin to delight in it. And you're listening, and if you're like me, at so many points in my life, you're going, I don't, I don't delight in the Bible. I might read it, I probably, maybe I don't read it, but I, I certainly don't delight in it. It's not like hot fudge. It's not like whatever that thing is for you. I don't delight in it. What, what in the world do I do? How do I, how do I delight in it? The process of beginning to delight in the word of God is really not a process that's all that different from the process that goes on in our house and, and helping our, our son, our five-and-a-half-year-old son, learn to want to delight in the things that bring health to his body. Like any five-year-old kid, if he could pick his menu every single day, it would be filled with five guys' burgers and macaroni and cheese. I mean, that would be it. Ask him what he wants. That's it. It doesn't change. But we want him to want what's healthy. We want him to want what will bring health to his body, what will continue to help him grow in, in strength and stature. And so instead of putting food in front of him and berating him for not eating it and telling him if he doesn't eat it, then he's not going to get X or, or making it some kind of issue like that, we continually try to encourage him as to why he should delight in the things that bring health to his body. What we want for him is to want what's healthy for him. And so we talk about it. We try to help him understand what brings health to his body why it should be important to him, why it should be important to how we take care of ourselves. And the next thing you know, he's laying down praying and he's asking God to change his taste buds that he might want what's healthy for him because he doesn't really want it. It's really not that different. I I mean, it's not just to be funny. It's not that different. To learn to delight increasingly in in the word of God that it might taste and and be desirous to your soul the way that, that macaroni and cheese and five guys is to my son is a process of continually exposing your soul to why, why we should delight in the word of God. And then asking the only one who can do that kind of work in your heart to make it a reality. It's to simply pray like like David in Psalm 119, open my eyes, Lord, that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. It's to just pray and ask, but to consistently expose yourself to why. Why should you delight in it? And that's what we're going to do. Is that okay? I don't have time to go through everything, but we're just going to try to shotgun some things that the scriptures say about itself as to why we should delight in it, and we're going to pray. And I'm just going to pray as I'm preaching. We won't stop and pray, but no, I'm praying as I preach. You can pray as you listen that God will be getting to open the eyes of our hearts to help us to delight in the wondrous things in his word because there's wondrous things in here. You have to believe that. There are wondrous things in his word. So turn the pages of your Bible over to Psalm 19. We'll we'll go there first. Psalm 19, we don't have time to go through the whole thing, so we'll we'll zip down and we'll start in verse 7. Why should we delight in the Word of God? Verse 7, we'll go through verse 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So again, let's be really simple for the sake of time. Here's the assumption we're going to start with. 
He's talking about the scriptures, all right? He's talking about what we have now before us as the Bible, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. Those are all different ways that they had for talking about the Bible, for talking about the scriptures that they had. So assumption number one, we're talking about the Bible. Fair? Is that good? That easy? All right. The Bible, he says, is more to be desired than gold. More to be desired than fine gold. More to be desired than much fine gold. Sweeter to your tastes than not just honey, but honey straight out of the comb. Like you can reach in where the bees are and yank that thing out. As tasty as that is, it's, it's to delight your soul in that sense. So he's saying that if you're given the option of gold, lots of gold, lots of really, really nice gold in the scriptures, hands down, your heart should delight in the scriptures. Your heart should want the scriptures. Your heart should want the word of God more than it wants much fine gold when faced with the option. It's to be sweet. And for that to happen, for for that to be a reality, you're going to have to take what Jonathan Edwards said and you're going to have to move beyond the knowledge of the word of God being sweet. I'm pretty good at that. If you've been in church for a long time like me, you've got an understanding in your brain that the word of God is sweet. There's wondrous things in the word of God. There's great stuff there. It's sweet. But you've got to move beyond knowing it's sweet to actually having a taste of its sweetness. If when faced with much fine gold, and you can insert whatever you want into that category, it's just a picture. When faced with something other than the essential realities of the word of God, you've got to actually have a sense of its value and its sweetness if you're going to take it. If you're going to delight in it, if you're going to hold on to it, if you're going to trust it with all that you are for all that you've got and the breath that you have been given by God. You have to move beyond a knowledge of its sweetness to actually tasting it, having a a sense of its sweetness. So he says we're we're to want it. We're to want the word of God more than anything else. So why? Why should we want it more than anything else? Why should I want that more than much fine gold or, or whatever else I have to choose from? Well, he, he doesn't leave us empty-handed in that. I'll give you three things. Three things here and then quickly three other things as to, as to why. First, the scriptures will bring your stagnant soul to life. You hear what he says in there? The law of the Lord is perfect. What? Reviving the soul. Your stagnant soul constantly berated by frustration and despair and depression and listlessness and fear. The stagnation of your soul when, when pondering the, the glory of God and the graciousness of God in the face of Christ. The stagnation of your soul that, that you can put words to. I don't even need to put words to it. You know what I'm talking about when I say that. The thing that has the capacity to bring life to the death that is in your soul right now is the word of God. You've got to believe that. More than believing that, you need to get a sense of it. You need to have a sense of the capacity of the word of God to actually revive your soul. See, without a a consistent capacity to to learn and to increase in your capacity to delight in the word of God. 
You're going to find a stagnation resting in your soul. And in the absence of the word of God, if you're in that, what I would probably say, 85 percentile of the American church that professes to, to follow Jesus, that never opens up the word of God on a regular basis, I can guarantee you right now you're sitting there stagnant. Because without the thing that has the capacity to bring life to your soul, regularly infusing that life, there's no other option. Some of you are desperate for some kind of vitality to to be found in your relationship with God. It's the word, it's right here. This is the thing that has the capacity to bring that about. You've got to believe it. The scriptures have the capacity to bring life to your soul, to revive what's stagnant in your in your heart. That's not all he says, though. The scriptures have a unique capacity to rescue you from your foolishness. To rescue you from your foolishness. I mean, the one of many downsides to being a part of the 21st century with the proliferation of technology and the proliferation of information is that there's been an unbelievably rapidly growing and expanding proliferation of voices telling us what should be real, what we should want, who we should be, how we should define ourselves, why we're here, where we should be going, what success is, what health is, what failure is, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. There's a proliferation of voices out there such to the degree that without something cutting through those voices, bringing some type of wisdom and stability to our souls in the midst of all that's going on out there, we're going to be tossed to and fro, confused, if there's anything that continues to, to mark this generation of, of American churchgoers, it's an unbelievable confusion as to who they are, who they're supposed to be, who God is, why they're here, what the point of it all is. Is any wonder when some 85% of them have never understood and never encountered the realities of the Word of God? I mean, did you hear what he said? I didn't put the text up there. I'll show you the text. In, in, in Psalm 19, not only do they bring life to your heart, they make wise the simple, David said. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The word of God is sure. And it makes wise the simple. And here's what I absolutely love. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The, the word of the Lord is pure. Listen, enlightening the eyes. As your capacity to delight in the word of God increases, The word of God has this unique ability to open up your eyes. To bring a wisdom that comes from nowhere else but the spirit of God himself, from the word of God himself, to open up your eyes. And as things around you continue to proliferate and and try to show you what you should want and who you should be, your eyes can be opened. Wisdom that comes from the very spirit of God himself is in your soul and you can see things for what they are. You can see what it's saying for what it really is. The foolishness of what's around you can get cut straight to the quick. And can be exposed. The confusion that so marks your heart and so marks your soul and, and so stagnates your life. It's dealt with. The word of God can rescue you from the foolishness that you're so caught up in. It rescues me daily. My wife knows when I have not been increasingly delighted in the word of God. The foolishness of my heart comes out of my mouth. And it doesn't take long until she reminds me. Good woman. Third thing. The scripture has a unique capacity to bring joy where there is no joy. 
if there's anything that there's anything that this generation could be characterized by, it's by being a people who lack joy. I mean, just yesterday, sitting in that memorial service, listening to generations of people talk about this woman who, who I love to, to the person, hands down, first thing they'd say about her was the joy, the contagious joy that was found in her heart that would come out of her, of her life and everything she did. I couldn't help but sit there and think Think about myself, think about you. Think about just the, the church generation that we're a part of. And if there's anything that we would be guilty of not being characterized by, it's joy. But the scriptures, scriptures, when they begin to be a delight, have the capacity to bring joy where there is no joy. They can make your heart Rejoice. The precepts of the Lord are right, David said. What do they do? They make your heart rejoice. Scriptures can rescue you from your foolishness. They can bring life to your soul. And they can fill your heart with joy like nothing else. Here's my three other things. I'm channeling Raymond. I got three things and three more things. How do they do it? I'll go real fast. How do the scriptures have the capacity to bring joy, bring wisdom, revive the soul? First, the scriptures in and of themselves, when we approach them and surrender to them and begin to engage them in reading and meditating on them, the first thing they show us hands down every time you open it, no matter where you go, they show you God. How do they have the capacity to do this in your soul? Because when you engage the scriptures, the first thing that you come across, no matter where you go, is the very God who breathed them out. The very God who spoke and created everything that is. The very God who in his own mind and in his own wisdom created you. The very God who rules and reigns and continues to hold all things exactly where they are and carries them out to his intended purpose. When you open the scriptures, you are confronted with this God and all of his goodness and all of his righteousness and all of his holiness and all of his justice and all of his love and all of his mercy and all of his patience. You are confronted with him everywhere you go. And when you are confronted by him, as you engage the scriptures, you're confronted with something else. You're confronted with yourself. The scriptures have one of the most unique capacities for actually getting beneath the surface of things in your own life and in your own soul and laying you bare. Do we have Hebrews 4? Put up Hebrews 4 up there. We'll take the time to do this because we've got to get this. Hebrews 4? I don't know if I, it's up there. there. There we go. Listen to this. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature, that includes you, is hidden from his sight, talking about God. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When you approach the scriptures, when you read the scriptures, you are confronted with the person of God and you are confronted with yourself. The scriptures have the capacity to expose the depths of your soul, who you really are. What your thoughts, what your intention, what your motivations really are. It's probably one of the chief reasons we don't read them. The scriptures have a unique ability to cut through all the nonsense 
all the stuff you throw out to everybody else, all the projections you put up in front of yourself, the scriptures have the capacity to cut straight through those things and expose you for who you really are. They get to that deep underbelly of your soul, getting after why you actually do what you do and think what you think and want what you want and delight in whatever it is you delight in. And when we come to the scriptures and surrender to the scriptures and expose our soul to the scriptures, it actually begins to expose us. And we're confronted not only with who God is, but in response to that, through the scriptures, who we really are. It reveals our our sin and our inability to actually rescue ourselves. It exposes our desperate need for a Savior. And that's the third thing you get when you come to the scriptures. How can they bring life to a dead soul? How can they bring joy to a despairing heart? How can they bring wisdom in the midst of such foolishness well they show you god they show you your sin and who you are and then it shows you everywhere you go the person and work of jesus you are confronted with the reality of god and the reality of your sin and the desperate need you have to be saved from yourself and it shows you the one whom god ordered from the beginning to do the very thing you cannot do for yourself from page one to the end you're confronted with the person and work of jesus In fact, in his gospel, the writer John actually starts it off. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and he became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. Jesus himself, actually, after rising from the dead, after dying for our sins, appears to his disciples along the road. They don't recognize him. He begins to talk to them. And as he begins to walk with them and talk with them, and begin to assess the confusion that was going on in their heart as to what was actually happening, how they hadn't really understood what was going on, he began to encourage them sharply how everything that they had known and everything that they had read from the stories of the patriarchs forward were all about him. They were all pointing to him. They were all exposing the reality of the person and work of God, the reality of their sin and their desperation, and the reality of God's solution in Jesus himself. And he began to walk with them and show them how everything in the Bible, Old Testament at that time, was all pointing to him. When you open up the Bible, surrender yourself to the word of God, you are exposed to the only person who can actually rescue you from who you are. You're exposed to Jesus. God reveals himself to us most clearly through his word, in the person of Jesus. That is how the scriptures can do what they can do in your soul. That is why we should delight in them, find joy in them, taste them as sweet on our tongue. I got a couple of minutes left. That's it. A couple of minutes. And I'll get real practical. And we never really do this kind of thing here, but I think it's important. How do you actually do that? Okay, how do I actually begin? Because 85% of you or more don't actually read this thing on a regular basis, honestly. How do I actually begin to cultivate this delight in the word of God? Well, you're gonna have to read it, okay? And and you're gonna have to to begin to meditate on it. And this is what we'll do in the last few minutes. I'm gonna help you with that. Is that okay? Really simple, I'm gonna help you. First thing, big E on the I chart when you start this process. First thing, don't, don't bypass this. You've got to deal with the posture of your heart and your mind and your soul when you come to it. That's why around here we talk a whole lot 
about wanting to be a people who are increasingly learning to surrender to the word of God. You've got to approach this thing with, with a posture of humility. I mean, too many times we, we come to the scripture with this kind of arrogance, this intellectual arrogance about it, that we're going to read it, and those of us who do, we're going to dissect it, and we're going to pull it apart. We're going to figure out what it says, and we're going to get all this information about it. We're going to take it apart. And we need to approach the scriptures with this posture of humility, with the sense that we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to open up the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the wondrous things in his word, that we might be exposed to God, that we might actually be exposed to the depths of our soul, and that he would desperately show us the person and work of Jesus and what he's done in that, and we're going to surrender to it. We're not going to sit over it. We're going to ask God to to read us by it. We're not just going to approach the Bible so that we can read it and check it off a list. You're going to pray. You're going to say, God, let your word begin to read me. Just read my heart. Read my soul. You've got to approach it with humility. You have to approach it with surrender. And when you do, what you're saying is, you know best and I don't. You talk, I'll, I'll listen. You, you are wise, I am foolish. And that's how we have to approach this thing, okay? So the first thing is, is just this posture. You, you've got to actually surrender. Next thing, big E on the eye chart. I'll go quick you actually have to read it yourself. You actually have to read it. We are a church people who are content to live on the meditation and prayer and study of other people. It's much easier to read a book about the Bible than it is actually read the Bible itself. It's much easier to actually pick up a devotional book with half a verse and two pages of meditation than it is to actually pick up the Bible. And those things are great. Books about the Bible, devotional books, great. Sermons, you've probably got iPods full of them. I'm probably the least listened to sermon per preacher in your life. You probably listen to other preachers throughout the week more than you actually listen to whoever preaches here. And that's okay. Take advantage of those things. But they can't be primary. You can't get into the habit of trying to feed your soul on the study and meditation of other people. You're actually going to have to read the Bible yourself, okay? So you've got to come to it with surrender, but then you've actually got to read it. And, and then and here's what you'll need, all right? Really, really simple, really simple. You're going to need a Bible, all right? You're going to need a Bible that you'll actually read, all right? That's really important. You laugh. You're going to need a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on trays behind each of these sections. Please take one. Go with it. It is our, our gift to you. But you need a Bible that you'll actually read, Okay? And once you have a Bible that you actually read, you're going to need to find a place and a time to actually read it. All right? It's not going to happen haphazardly. Don't, don't throw the whole quiet time thing on me right now, okay? I'm not talking about the quiet time. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then God bless you. You have not been defiled by the culture of the church yet. You are going to need a place and a time to read your Bible. It's not just going to happen. I don't care what time you read your Bible. You need to find a time that's good for you when you're awake and when you're alert. First thing in the morning doesn't work for me. That's just not my best time. But I beat everybody into the office. By the time I get to the office, there's nobody else there. And I've got the coffee programmed to be ready when I get there. 
and we've got a sofa in our office and reading chairs in our office, and we've got a conference table in our office that has these windows that are floor to ceiling that open up to, to, to Main Street in front of us, and the sun comes in at that time of the day, and I sit right there with a cup of coffee and my Bible, and I read. I'm awake. I'm alert. I'm, I'm ready. I, the computer isn't on. The internet isn't on. The phone is turned off. It doesn't work for me right when I get up in the morning. I get up at 5.30 in the morning. I'm not even awake. I'm good to get my kids dressed into school. But you've got to find a time and you've got to find a place. And you've got to write it down and you've got to plan for it, okay? And don't tell me you're busy, okay? There's two ways to use the word busy. I'm busy preaching right now. You're busy listening. That's a good way to use the word busy. The way we generally use the word busy is really talking about a state of our soul. I'm busy. I'm rushed. You know, I'm distracted. I'm, I'm busy. And busyness has become, for some, a new level of spirituality. I heard a guy talk about this recently, and it absolutely resonated with me. It's become a new spirituality. It's become a new thing to define ourselves by and believe in. And he went on to talk, and I'll share it with you because it was good for me. It'll be good for you. He said, we tell people that we're busy and we feel busy, distracted, and rushed for two reasons. One, we're arrogant and vain. And we live in a culture that defines itself and its success by busyness. He said, walk into a doctor's office. If it's not busy, will you stay? No. The value of that doctor is on the fact that it takes you a long time to get in there. He must be good. We look around and we look at people who we think are successful and we look at their life and look at their busyness and try to define ourselves by it and think, if I'm going to be like that person, I've got to do all these other things. And our busyness is a product of our vanity. We try to prove ourselves by what we can do and can't accomplish. And he said, well, for other people and even for those people as well, busyness is a product of being lazy. You're allowing other people to put expectations on you and define your time for you. You don't have the strength of conviction to actually say no to something. To actually find what's most important for you to put your hand to in the hours that you've been given and make sure it happens. You're lazy. And you let circumstances in the world around you define it for you. So don't tell me you're busy. Students, moms, dads, you're not too busy. What's your kids, mom and dad, need from you more than your paycheck or more than your capacity to come up with cloth diapers and homemade clothes is your holiness before God. That's what they need most from you. As good as everything else is, that's not what they need most. They need a mom and a dad who have understood what's primary and whose souls are delighting themselves in the word of God who can then pass on that to their children. How else are you going to accomplish what God had told Moses and encouraged the people to do and walking with their children on a day-in and day-out basis and communicating the word of God to them, to having it on their foreheads and in front of their minds. How are they to tell of God's great deeds to the next generation if they don't delight in it and don't know it? What your kids need from you most is your holiness and your righteousness, your sense of acceptance before God because of who Jesus is, and that comes from delighting in the word of God because that's where you find it. So get a time, get a place, get a Bible. You're going to need a plan. There's a million plans for reading the Bible. You're the city. If you're all in the city, the city has a Bible reading plan right there. When you log in, you get your profile, it says Bible reading. You can click it, it gives you a daily plan to read the Bible. You can go right there and get it. If you take one of our free Bibles up here in the back, they have a reading plan right there in them. Plan, guide you straight through what you do. You know, if you read the Bible 12 pages a day for a standard-sized Bible, you read the entire Bible in 90 days. 90 days. You need a plan. You need something to direct direct you. We're memorizing the book of Ephesians. What if you just read the book of Ephesians slowly? Every single day or every couple of days for the next 16 weeks. Here's your plan. What if you just 
allowed your soul to be mastered by the book of Ephesians. You need a plan. You need a Bible. You need a place. You need time. You need a plan. You need a pen. You need a highlighter. Because as you're reading, certain verses are going to pop off the pages of the Bible. I'm not talking about studying and breaking down Hebrew and stuff. No, just reading. And as you read, certain things are going to pop up off the pages of the Bible. Who do you think is making them pop up? Who, who do you think is making those things pop up as you read it? Highlight it. Just highlight it. That's all I'm asking you to do. Just highlight it. And keep reading. And just keep reading. And then right there next to you, next to your Bible, at your pen and your highlighter, in your place, you got whatever you want to have, a journal, and for me, a scratch piece of paper. And here's what they're for. When you've read whatever was allotted for you to read, I take the journal, and I pick one of those passages that was highlighted, and I write it down at the top of my page, and then I begin to meditate. Just begin to meditate. Don't freak out on that. Eastern meditation is this process of emptying your mind and, and trying to achieve this level of emptiness and, and thoughtlessness. That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is the opposite. It's filling your mind and filling your soul with thoughts of God and thoughts of the Scripture. So I take one of those that the Holy Spirit popped off the Bible that I highlighted, that I write it down, and I begin to meditate. I just begin to ask questions of it. For me, I actually try to put myself in it. I try to see it like a movie. I try to remember what it was, must have been like in that time. I begin to think about it. I begin to ask questions of it. Oh, why did he say that? What were they thinking? How would I have responded? What, what's this showing me about who God is? Man, what's this showing me about my soul, my desires, and my wants? Where do I need to repent? What's this showing me about my, my own sin, and, and how is Jesus somehow connected to this passage? Is it pointing to him? Is he the answer to this? How is it exposing to me what he did on my behalf? I just meditate and think. I just write it down, and I write it down. And right next to that is a scratch piece of paper. And that scratch piece of paper is for all the thoughts that pop into my head while I'm reading pay the bill. Call Ray. Answer this. I just write it down. Write it down. No condemnation. It's going to happen every time you read. Don't freak out. Just write it down. Later you can put it in your planner. You can put it in whatever you use. I, I, don't, I don't care what you use. Just write it down. Know what's going to happen and write it down. And then as I'm done, as I come to the end of that time, and I'm, I'm, I pray. I just pray. I start. I ask God to open up my eyes that he might show me why I should delight in his word, that he might show me wondrous things in his word, that I might see myself for who I am and him for who he is and Jesus for who he is. And then as I do this and I think and I meditate, I come to the end and I pray and I ask God to give me, honestly for me, the courage to actually repent where I need to repent, to obey where I need to obey, to actually put feet to the things that I have seen as I have meditated and read on his word. That's it. That's it. If we were to take 20 minutes to just read, 20 minutes to just meditate, and then let's just be good, 20 minutes to actually take what was going on in our soul that we thought about, wrote about, and saw in the Word and talk with someone else about it, your kids, your wife, your spouse, your friend, actually begin to engage other people, an hour, an hour. The average American spends five hours a day on television or the Internet. an hour. What, what if, and what if we could just do this? And what if we could just read the Bible? What if we could just meditate on the Word? What if we could just pray 
and ask God for the desire to delight in his word, that he would open up our eyes to see the wondrous things in his word, that we would be a people who then could have the courage by his Holy Spirit to actually obey it? What kind of fruit would be possible? What would be possible? No guilt this morning. If there's conviction in your soul, it's not from me, it's from the Holy Spirit. What if we could be this kind of people? What if, what if this could mark us? I want us to be deep. I want us to be deep. And that kind of depth comes from delighting in the God-breathed scriptures that are sufficient and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for exhortation, for encouragement, for the transformation of our souls. That's what I want for us. That's what I want. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you did not leave us alone to ourselves, but not only did you give us your son Jesus, but you gave us your very word, exposing to us who you are, a God of not only greatness and righteousness and justice and sovereignty, but a God of relationship, a God who has come in his son, who has known us, who has loved us, who has laid his life down for us, that he might redeem us back to you, that we might be called your children, that we might have a future hope to look forward to and a present spirit to be empowered by. Thank you that all of this is found in your word that you have given to us and that we can read your word with delight and with joy and not out of some sense of duty, but out of a sense of having the capacity to develop our relationship with you, that as we read your word and are read by your word, our relationship with you is built, it's strengthened, it's encouraged, and confidence and excitement and joy begins to invade our soul. May those things, may those things, may those things mark us, Father. We ask this, Lord, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.